Did you hear the news? LifeFlow has been named one of the best accounting and finance software products for 2024 by G2. And because of the support of listeners like you, LifeFlow is also on G2's list of the 100 fastest growing products of 2024. If you're thinking about implementing LifeFlow with clients soon, there's even more good news. G2 also awarded LifeFlow as most implementable for winter 2024. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, LifeFlow, later in the episode. Ever wished you could earn CPE credits while on the go? Introducing Earmark, the app revolutionizing the way accountants earn their CPE. Just listen to your favorite accounting and tax podcasts, whether you're driving to work, working out, or even doing chores. After you're done listening, take a quick quiz. Score 70% or higher, you've earned your CPE. It's that easy. Plus, with Earmark, you're not just ticking a box. You're actually learning valuable insights from top accounting podcasts. So why wait? Download the Earmark app now on iOS or Android and transform your listening time into CPE credits. Make the most of your day and stay ahead with Earmark. For me, it's really about balance, about getting to a place where I can touch the things that I'm really interested in. And the flip side of that is when I go to conferences or when I go to events, being able to have that as time to meet and actually enjoy people and not feel like every time I'm doing something that talks about accounting, it is only about work. Coming to you weekly from the OnPay Recording Studio. Hello, and welcome back to the show. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. And joining us today is a very special guest. We've got Keela Hill-Trawick, CPA. Hey, Keela. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. You're a celebrity. You were on the, <laughs> you were on the cover of the Journal of Accountancy. I for the, was. For the December issue. With not just a feature, you actually wrote a really powerful article about how you're growing your firm. And I, I, I really want to talk through that. Um, it's, it's, it's totally different than the traditional got to grow top line revenue, get bigger, get bigger, get bigger idea. Uh, and you have kind of the opposite idea. So I think that'll be fun to talk about. Uh, but first, I'm, I'm curious, you know, like it's the end of the year. We're recording on December 13th. David and I are kind of doing like a big push to get to the end, try to get some stuff done. What about you, Keela? Yeah, we're in sprint season right now. So my firm closes three times a year. Um, we close for spring break right after tax season. We have a week off in the summer and then we close for the last two weeks of December for winter break. So it's the roller coaster of like, get everybody's stuff out, answer all the questions, make sure we're reminding people over and over that we'll be closed. And then a drop hopefully next week of rest for the next two weeks. Very nice. How about you, David? How are you doing? I'm mean, doing okay. We're uh, I, I I find Keila fascinating from uh, like at one level. I feel like I didn't even know who she was a year and a half ago, two years ago, per se. And then now she's on the cover of Journal of Accountancy. And but <laughs> and, and and I I find and it's fascinating. I wanted to talk about this. Like at one level, she talks about building her firm just big enough and just kind of this nice, manageable size firm. But then her personal brand and career has gone like a rocket ship. <laughs> so I want to understand that 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 relationship there a little bit more. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure I have questions on how we do that too, because it all <laughs> feels new to me as well. <laughs> well, so let's so let's let's dig into this piece you wrote yeah. in the Journal of Accountancy. Um, you know, you you talk about intentional growth pursued carefully helps a firm thrive now and in the future. Maybe just let's start by where you started, right? Where you're in Washington D.C. Yep. 
how did you get started? When did you get started? And 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 where are you? You know, take us on your journey. Yeah, so I guess I'm an accidental firm owner, like many that I have met in between. Um, I never worked in public accounting, so I came from uh, corporate accounting. When I, I'm from Atlanta, so I did corporate accounting there. Decided to move to DC. The easiest way to do that was to get into the federal government, and so I worked for a couple of different agencies in the federal government. But I had never had a job longer than like a year and a half, maybe two years. I would quit my jobs regularly and do something else. And so I was at the patent and trademark office. I was doing um, internal control audits and had gotten to that place where I was like, yeah, we need to do something else because this is not it. And two things happened. My husband at my husband at the time, at the time, my husband, who is still my husband now, <laughs> said, <laughs> hey, um, I don't think you need a new job. You need something else to do with your time. So the problem is you keep thinking that the next job is going to be the thing that makes you passionate or makes you excited about things. That's not it. You need a hobby or something else to do. And at the same time, I had a bunch of friends who were quitting their jobs to go into business for themselves. They were doing consulting. They were doing training. A lot of them doing what accounting firm owners do, which is like this thing that I used to do for corporate. I'm not going to make my own business doing it for other people. And I was like, oh, I don't know a lot about it, but I know more than they do. I could learn how to do that. And so the firm really started as a side hustle for me not to quit my job. And then I quit my job a year later um, during tax season. And part of what I knew from the beginning and the reason that the firm is called Little Fish is because I knew that I wanted to serve very small businesses who are often overlooked because they make good money, but they're not expected to make good money. So it's like, if you're not bringing in at least $5 million, we're not talking to you, or they don't even get to where they're asking them about their revenue or profit because they just assume if there's only two people on your team, you probably don't make enough for me to deal with you. And so we knew from the beginning that we wanted to serve businesses who would otherwise be overlooked, but also how could we kind of build a resource library or ability to serve people who, to some extent, were just not going to be able to afford ongoing accounting help, but still needed something to be able to do it themselves with support. So I find that you're, you're just, by you naming it, what you named it, Little Fisher County, you're self-selecting who your clients are going to be. Mm-hmm. There's nobody at a Fortune 500 or Fortune 2000 or Fortune 5000 that's going to go to their their board and be like, we found our accounting firm. It's called Little Fish Accounting, right? You're self-selecting who your clients will be. And like, I think a lot of people don't think about that when they're branding and naming their companies and things like that. Yeah. And one of the things that we knew from the beginning was even in that self-selection, there was going to be variety. So I think a lot of people assume, oh, you're working with you know, small businesses in quotes. And I was like, I am, but our businesses are making high six figures, mid seven figures. They may not have a lot of people on the team, but it's not that they're not making money. And I understood early on that people who made more needed something different. So like once you got beyond a certain point, when you got 50, 100, 1,000 people, we shouldn't be your accountant. Because the things that you need and the complexities that you're running into is not our kind of secret sauce, the path that we take for most of our clients. So the more alike that they could look in a specific kind of arena, the better we could serve everybody because we had best practices that would apply to all of them. So in your article, Keila, you talk about how when you started your firm, you were doing not just the monthly and quarterly deliverables, but you were doing weekly invoicing, biweekly oh, yeah. payroll, contractor payments. And as you grew, 
it got difficult to take time off, and that wasn't something you wanted. So you stopped doing payroll. You stopped doing AR and AP and contractor payments. Mm-hmm. So walk me through that decision, because it's not often that a firm decides to cut back on services to clients. It seems like we tend to add more and more and more. Well, first of all, that was terrifying because they were our highest paying clients. Like we were, I think one of the things that I don't think we talk about enough is it is easy to say you're going to niche and you're going to change and all of that when people are not willing to pay you to do it anyway. So you can make the decision at the beginning to say, I will not offer this service. And that feels very easy because in the moment, nobody's asking you to offer that service. In this, it was hard because I was telling people who were willing to pay us, who were happy with service, who loved everything that we were doing, hey, we don't do that anymore. And either you're going to have to downgrade into the service that we offer or I'll help you find somebody else. So my first thought was all these clients are going to leave us. Um, We're going to lose all this money. What am I going to do? But there were a couple of things. One, we couldn't take off because as long as you need something weekly or ongoing and you're paying that much money for it, your idea is like, I know that y'all are closed, but I need payroll run and I need these invoices paid. And so you could be off, but you always had to like check in on Wednesday and make sure that it actually processed the way that it was supposed to. Mm -hmm. The other thing is I realized that that all encompassing idea made boundaries really hard to enforce. Because every time you had something that seemed remotely related to a dollar, you thought that we should own it. And so there would be things like somebody would have a question on sales tax. And I'd be like, well, we don't do sales tax. But it seems like because we do everything else that is related to finance for you, that we would also take this thing on. So what are your core services? Like an ideal client, what are you doing for them? Yeah. So now we're down to two. Um, You can be in tax prep suite. So that's our year round tax service. It includes annual tax prep, quarterly estimates and payments. We do two tax planning calls, one in the middle of the year and one at the end of the year. They get ongoing email support. And then we do the things like um, entity review, setting up their escorts um, to the ex- or their election to the extent that we can, talking to them about reasonable salary and accountable plans, basically just trying to make sure that throughout the year, we're doing enough for you that by the time we file the return, it's just settling up. Like the value add is that we're also filling that form out for you. And then our next service is a fractional CFO service um, called Financial Manager, where we always include everything that's in taxes, but we also take care of bookkeeping keeping financial statements, um, monthly calls with a video to review um, their financials, budget, forecast, all of that like monthly financial information stuff that we're doing. Okay. That was, that was my big question was, are you still doing the bookkeeping? Because Mm -hmm. everything I've heard about doing CFO services or advisory services is that you can't do that effectively if you're not also overseeing the books because you know, yeah. bad bad data in, garbage in, garbage out, right? So yeah. you're still doing that. You're just not doing the urgent stuff, the, the payment-related stuff. Yeah, we call it the day-to-day stuff that usually needs an internal email address is the things that we don't do anymore. So we won't send invoices and then follow up on them to see where they stand right. or pay bills on your behalf. We'll match all the payments. We'll answer any questions that you have about them. But the other thing that I noticed about when we were doing that work is – it felt like a game of telephone because so much 
you could have already, by the time you sent it to me, you could have sent the invoice because you knew when the milestone was, you know, we have a lot of ad agencies and consultants and trainers. And so they would have stuff in the SOW of when an invoice should go out. And then you had to complete the work and then you had to do it. And then you sent it to me. And I'm like, by the time you sent it to us, you could have just gotten their invoice out to them and tracked it properly. So, So are you training your clients or staff at your client's to do this work? Or are you just kind of letting them be on their own? Are you coming and saying, hey, use these three apps to accomplish this? We're going to put you on, yeah. on pay payroll, whatever it might be, to do your payroll. And you do you set it up and do that kind of app advising and set up? Or do you just, hey, we don't do these services? No, that's a really good question. So it started with, we will teach you how to do it regardless of which one you're using. So whoever you're using for payroll, these are the things that you should be aware of. If questions come up, we will tell you how, but we're not going to press the button. One of our goals for next year is to really hone in on that tech stack and say, really, you need to be using this. This is the best way to do it. And honestly, as a firm owner, part of that came with hiring people who could be software champions, because as long as I was the person that thought you should use this payroll or this receipt management or whatever it was. Every time you had a question, that became my job to be your tech supporter for the thing that you signed up for. And so now we're building resources and having the team really be invested in. You need to understand this so that when they ask you questions, even if you're not the person that answers it, you can give them a really direct response to where they should look for information and not just, this is how payroll works. Look in your app and see how they'll take care of it for you. So speaking of staffing, you created a staffing strategy to make sure that your firm was sustainable. Uh, What's your team look like? How did you build it? Yeah. So one of the reasons that I wrote the article and that I've been thinking a lot about kind of this, this size of business is because I didn't know any accountants when I started my firm. And then like a couple of years ago, I got on Twitter and then I met a lot of accountants and I realized that many firms seem to be on opposite ends of the spectrum. So either it was like a solopreneur that has a couple of contractors, maybe some extra people on their staff, but they're mainly doing the work and they just have helpers or these huge firms that were big to me. They could have had 50 people, 100 people, but like they were serving thousands of tax clients and monthly clients and all of that. And what was weird to me is that the people that were in what we call the messy middle were really only there because they were trying to be on their way to get big. They weren't purposefully having 10 people on staff. It was like, I have 10 because this is what I can afford until we get more people so that I can get to 50. And I knew a couple of things. One, I didn't know this at the beginning, but realized soon after that I wanted to be a business owner and not an accountant. I have no desire to review tax returns or do the bookkeeping or all of those things. And so in order for me to get out, it meant that we have to have enough people on the team to do all of that work. So I'm not always the flex employee. So the way we've set it up now is we have kind of the tax side and the monthly side. Um, There's an account manager for both of those and a staff or senior accountant for both of those sides. Um, And then we have, we'll hire a director of accounting next year that will be kind of over that whole side. And then we've got an operations, I mean, these titles are arbitrary, but we have an operations director who manages everything that is not accounting. So partnering with our HR 
um, outsource department, partnering with legal, managing the IT outsourcing that we're doing. Like basically I wanted to have it where there were kind of two columns that work together, where the operations, you're taking the part of my brain that does not require the accounting expertise. And the accounting director takes everything that actually requires that you understand how accounting works. Um, so there are six of us now. We are hiring two people in the spring. So a staff accountant and an admin person. And then my last hire, it's when I feel like, yes, I did everything that I was supposed to on the team. I can kind of get out. We'll be that director of accounting to be the final level of review and all of that. So I think we'll end at about 10. And you're going to, you're, you're keeping the revenue, th the revenue cap at like around a million. Yep. And basically we can take as many clients as this size of team can actively and uh, support with excellence. So anytime we get to a place and I know that this will change, like I, I don't make goals. And so I tend to just be like, I mean, this seems like a good idea to do this for now, but I, what I want to be careful about is if we add somebody that we're intentional, that like we are doing this because we are trying to get to this thing. Not what I feel like a lot of us do and probably what we were doing early on too. If three more people are willing to pay us, I will just hire a person and then we'll be able to support them. And then a couple more people come and then I will add more people. Um, I think we'll stay in the one million to million and a half range and that'll cover everybody and give us a healthy profit. This episode of the Accounting Podcast is sponsored by LifeLow. I was talking to Beth Melcher of MoneyFit while QuickBooks Connect, and she was raving about how LifeLow's consolidation feature is saving her team 15 to 20 minutes per client every week. I love how LifeLow's automated multi-entity consolidation is so simple to use. You can easily map multiple unmatching chart of accounts from multiple QuickBooks Online companies into one unified report. And once it's set up, LifeLow works its magic, updating the consolidations automatically in real time, so you can focus on analysis using instantly updated data. LifeLow can even consolidate financials that are different currencies, and the possibilities don't stop there. LifeLow empowers you with flexible, powerful reporting tools to create customized dashboards that meet your specific needs, build executive presentations, cash flow forecasts, and more with just a few clicks. To stop grueling over manual consolidation reports and to get 20% off your first three months, head over to accountingpodcast.promo slash LifeLow. That is accountingpodcast.promo forward slash L-I-V-E-F-L-O-W. What are you charging your clients for those two packages approximately? Yep. So um, tax prep suite starts at about 6,000 for the year and our fractional CFO starts at 3,500 a month. Okay. So it's not, because some part of me is like, oh, I, I see she's picking up and I'm like, you know, people are, you reduced services to fire clients, but, but you're already charging a decent fee yeah. under charging yeah. just because they're little fish, right? You, those are, right. Those are real, those are real prices. Like th these are, yeah. And I think that was the thing that I wanted to emphasize, too, is that we tend just entrepreneurially, not just in um, accounting, we tend to treat small businesses like all of them are hobbies. Like you're making a little bit of money. You've got a couple of people on your team. Maybe you hit six figures. Congratulations. But we have people who have five people on their team and are making two, three million dollars a year. They can afford to invest in an accountant. And yeah. when we reduce small businesses, which is like this wide range to, oh, they're usually making a little bit and they just need like a bookkeeper. We wanted to be really clear that like, 
at that level, you may not need all the things that we're doing. And that's fine. Maybe you just take taxes from us and you have a bookkeeper who's handling all of the ongoing stuff for you, but that it didn't mean that they, just because they were small, didn't mean they were broke. Yeah. Yeah. My big takeaway from this is you've distilled down your offering into basically two core services. Mm -hmm. You've got the recurring monthly, you've got the annual tax prep. I love the fact that the recurring is a, such a big piece of your revenue, like mm -hmm. at, because you're, you don't, you probably don't have the compression in tax season. I mean, you know, there's some of it, right. But not like as if you were doing 90% tax work and that to me, and we only what, have one yeah. tax season. So like we don't extend a lot. There's very few, there's only so many people in our service. Yeah. And so we can do them all during the regular tax season and the anomalies that like don't sign on time or don't get in on time. We're getting them done in the summer. So we don't have to regroup in October of like, we could only get 600 in during tax season. So we had to move the rest to the end. We can actually knock them out on a timeline. Cause you're not saying yes to everybody. How many of those monthly clients would I have if I were a staff accountant mm -hmm. in your firm? Like how many would I be responsible for? Ah, uh, so probably I would say eight to 12, depending on like how complicated they mm -hmm. are. We've also still got some legacy, like we used to have this, but now we don't offer it anymore, but you didn't need as much as the current service offers. But I would say about eight to 12 before yeah. we're like, okay, we probably need to add usually at the bottom. We need another bookkeeper. We need another staff accountant because their ability to review is pretty fast. That's a nice number because I feel like I, as a bookkeeper and accountant, would I, I'd be able to give them a lot of attention. You know, if I'm doing fifty, it's like a teacher in a classroom that's got you know fifty students. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, and David, to your point, part of the reason that we charged how we did because we're not saying yes to everyone means that everybody gets that level of like. You can talk to somebody. We know your business. We've been working with you all year. We know what everything looks like, as opposed to, I think, some of the hamster wheels that they end up on when it's just tax prep and it's 1,500 of you. As long as I can get these out and I give you a deliverable, you should be glad. Do you see the so, – so Blake, he works for you. UK has 12 clients. Do you see yeah. you increasing the, his load by using other apps and AI and technology? Do you see that number changing soon? Yeah, I think that the ability to do the input work would be greatly uh, helped by AI, other apps. There's stuff that I haven't even been able to investigate yet so that the people on the team, their brain is used for the analysis. So even if you're a bookkeeper, your job isn't just getting the numbers in the buckets, but is really, when I review this, does it make sense? Am I catching anything that's not um, automatically happening with AI or something like that. So I think what I am hoping will happen is that everybody on the team just like levels up their ability to serve the client differently because they're not so focused in on categorizing or checking boxes, especially since our clients tend to look the same. So all their chart of accounts are the same. So we know what to look for. We know what kind of rules to build in. There's not a lot of like, well, you're a restaurant. So I have to make you a whole different set of rules of what this should look like. If we can make it look really similar, the ability to automate a lot of that will make it so that when the first time that somebody looks at it, they already know what they're looking at the same way for each client. That makes sense. It's really, yeah, yeah just standardizing it is going to make it more efficient. Makes a lot of sense. Right.
what's the ultimate goal, I guess, when you say you're just building enough or building mm-hmm. big enough? Like, I, I mean, I've heard you so far. It's like, hey, I want to I shut down my firm for four weeks. And you've mm-hmm. structured a lot of that to do that four weeks a year. But like, and you, you're saying you don't want to, you just want to be an entrepreneur or own a business, right? Mm-hmm. So like, what's really in it for you, I guess, as, as you move on? So it's funny when you said like, that you hadn't seen me before and then I'm up on things. It's weird to be almost, again, accidentally building a personal brand. Like my initial thought was, I just want to talk about it because I don't see other people talking about it. So can we say it out loud so maybe I can meet other people who are trying to do the same thing? Um, I love speaking. I love teaching, but I also don't want another job. I don't want to fill all the space that I got from not working at Little Fish with like, and now instead of doing all of this client work, I travel the world, you know, 30 weeks out of the year. And so for me, it's really about balance, about getting to a place where I can touch the things that I'm really interested in. And the flip side of that is when I go to conferences or when I go to events, being able to have that as time to meet and actually enjoy people and not feel like every time I'm doing something that talks about accounting, it is only about work. So there are ways that I want to show up and teach and talk. And then there's ways where I'm like, let's do that for you know, a part of the summer. And then I go to the beach and I don't take my, I have never found value in being able to take my laptop to the beach. I want to be on the beach. I don't want to work from anywhere. I want to work from my office and then I want to go on trips. And so trying to get better at that of saying, there's a really clear boundary between when I'm at work and I'm doing everything that I can to make sure that my team and our clients are taken care of, but then I am off. And when I'm off, there isn't anything that's kind of pulling me back on a regular basis to be attached back to the firm. And what you've done so well, I think, is communicate this. It's okay to grow to a certain size. And it makes me think about, and we've talked about all these growth surveys we've seen in the path where firms get X big. And then when they go to that next three or four steps before they become really big, profits go down, satisfaction goes down, like everything just tumbles until they push through to like the hundredth employee they get. But that like 10 employees to you know, 99 employees is just a mess right. for accounting firms. It's really yeah. difficult. Yeah, and we actually... Some of that... Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. No, go, Keila. I was just going to say some of that, I think, is because people aren't being intentional. They didn't get to 15 on purpose and stop and then think, okay, so before I go to my 20th employee, what's working, what's not? There is this constant trajectory of like, I got to get bigger. And I got 15 people and I'm trying to get to 100. So I'm just going to keep doing the things, not really realizing that like, these many milestones in between matter too. And so you go from 15 to maybe 25. Pause for a second. Is 25 good? Are we, is profit doing what it's supposed to? Because if it's not, you don't, you don't correct that by going to a hundred. And I think a lot of people are just plowing through thinking that that hundredth employee in this example on the other side is what's going to break them loose when it's like, yeah, but like at 50, we should have stopped to say, is this the right structure? Are we making enough money? Do our clients like us? Do our teams like us? And a lot of people aren't thinking about that except at the front and at the end and not along the way. I feel like this is a psychological problem that starts in school and starts when we're staff accountants working in public accounting. I remember the number one piece of advice I was given when I went to work at a large firm was just say yes to everything. Don't say no, right? (laughs) Because you don't want to say no to a partner that asks you for something and you got a bunch of them asking. And so the best thing is just to keep saying yes and get it done. And that's how you advance. And at a certain point that becomes very damaging. And yeah. 
you know, like, and also just like overloading ourselves. We're, we're taught in school, especially when we're doing CPA exam prep, to just put everything to the side and work and work and work to get through the exam. But then it continues after that too with yeah. your first job, right? Okay, just grind for two or three years, right? Then the reward will come. But somehow right. it's, always, it's always off in the distance, right? You never quite get there. And, and when we'll, you start a firm, yeah. it's a matter of survival, right? Like you're saying yes to everything because I need money and I cannot tell people no. So if you come to me with a thing right. that I think you'll pay me for, sure, I will take it. And then you're 10 years down and you're like, hey, you know, you don't still have to take everybody who asked you, right? Like we're in a better position now. You can make different decisions. And some of it I think is to your point about learning it early. I think the flip side of that is then we never stop to reassess. We're like, obviously the goal was to keep grinding. So I've just kept doing that. And I'm like, but do you like it? Cause you don't, you don't have to do it that way, yeah. but we don't stop to assess whether or not we want to do it that way. Well, should we talk about the news? Keela, we'd love to have you hang yes. out with us and we'll go through our stories. We're going to talk about some artificial intelligence stuff. Uh, I want to talk about Berkshire Hathaway and the, the lawsuit. Please, which do not accounting. skip it or forget it. Like, Make sure you get it this week. <laughs> it's been like three weeks in a row, I think, you've been wanting to do it. And I know, and there's probably somebody there shaking their fist at me like, come on, Blake. <laughs> so um, I don't. there's my screen. Uh, for those of you who are on the YouTube or the live stream, this was in the Wall Street Journal. The headline is, What's Behind Warren Buffett's Fight with a Truck Stop Mogul? As much as $1.2 is at stake in an argument over a seemingly obscure accounting method. And the accounting method in question is push-down accounting, which, uh, Keila, I don't know about you, but I have not encountered push-down accounting in my life as a CPA since no. you know, the exams and since accounting uh, school. And so I had to refresh <laughs> I had to refresh my memory. And Ron says, uh, WTF is that. Um, it's definitely not profit first, Ron. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of the opposite of it because it, it, it is supposedly it's what uh, has reduced the profits of the pilot truck stop or gas station chain. And that is what is at issue here. Uh, so quick refresher on what's going on here uh, with this lawsuit, if you haven't been following it. Um, pilot is pilot, where is Pilot in the country? I, I don't see them a lot in Arizona or California. They're driving on the highway in the remote areas. Okay. So there's one between Tucson and Phoenix. It's a and they have these huge big, gas station. big gas stations, right? For the truckers, yeah. yeah. The yeah. showers and all that. Yep, yep. Okay. I never so, see it in like residential areas. It's always like you're driving down the highway and relatively remote, and it's the only one that's off the exit. So the Hoslam family owns Pilot. They created it. They, you know, and then they, they sold it to Berkshire Hathaway for a lot of money uh, a few years ago. And according to the lawsuit, the Hoslam family has accused Berkshire of unilaterally and without consent adopting push-down accounting rules for Pilot. This accounting method allegedly artificially reduces Pilot's earnings before interest in taxes, which in turn significantly lowers the valuation of the remaining stake that the Hoslams hold in Pilot. So they sold most of Pilot to Berkshire Hathaway and kept 20% with the option to sell the rest of the 20% in the future at some sort of valuation method. Now, I was trying to remember, like, why would push-down accounting change the earnings before interest and taxes? 
And so I went to ChatGPT and I asked, I said, hey, what is pushdown accounting? And ChatGPT 4, I'm using the the paid version, told me that pushdown accounting is a method used in accounting when a company, the acquiree, becomes a subsidiary of another company, the acquirer, after a business combination such as a merger or acquisition. In pushdown accounting, the financial statements of the acquiree are prepared as if the acquirer's basis of accounting for the assets and liabilities it acquired are pushed down to the acquiree. This means that the acquiree's financial statements reflect the new basis of the assets and liabilities based on the acquirer's cost rather than the historical cost previously used by the acquiree. So this was not explained in any of the articles that I read uh, as to like why this actually caused earnings to decrease. And it's basically because most assets are held at a lower value on the books than they are in reality, right? Fair market value of most assets is higher than their net book value because assets increase in value over time. But most of the time we're conservative in accounting, right? And we don't recognize an increase in the value of- And usually most- this is where like in acquisitions, a big old chunk of funds just gets thrown into Goodwill. That's the difference. Usually. Right. Okay. And, and and so in pushdown accounting, what the acquiry does is like Berkshire goes to the pilot's books and, and increases the value of all the assets to the fair market value, whatever it paid, right? It, it, it takes that purchase price and allocates it to the different assets on the balance sheet. And usually, almost always, that, in, that, that increases the value. And then whatever they can't attribute to specific assets gets put into goodwill on okay. the balance sheet of pilot. Now, how does this affect earnings? Well, when you increase the value of the assets, that increases depreciation expense. So now, Pilot has greater depreciation expense, which then decreases their net earnings. And that reduces the valuation if the valuation is is based on earnings before interest and taxes, or EBITDA. So there you have it. A little accounting lesson here. So the lawsuit is, they're they're saying that that's an illegal move. It's unethical. Like, what's the, the basis they're arguing? Well, they're saying that Berkshire wasn't supposed to do this, that they did it unilaterally, and that somehow there was an agreement that they weren't going to do it. But it's not clear to me. And I suppose okay. we'll find out as the lawsuit unwinds or goes forward whether or not you know they did this properly or not. Um, but I think there's a connection to the other lawsuit we talked about in previous episodes, which was that Disney lawsuit. Yeah, where they had that film financing company sued Disney uh, for manipulating the earnings of subsidiaries to show lower earnings so that they didn't have to, they, they reduced their profits with inter-party, inter-related transactions so that they didn't have to pay as much to the financing company, which had a share of the profits of each of these films. So like the connection here is that the accounting... The way you do the accounting can manipulate profits or earnings. And it's really easy <laughs> to do that because there's lots of different ways to do accounting, right? Yeah. It's a classic joke. Yes, a doctor, a lawyer, and an accountant, what's one plus one? And the doctor and the lawyer say two, and the accountant says, what do you want it to be, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that's, what, you know, with, with profits, like that's, it's, it's possible to do it. And so whenever you're negotiating a contract, like this, I'm taking this as like a life lesson for me. I'm never going to negotiate based on profits. 
If it, like like if I'm selling a business, yeah. never never based on the bottom line. Always something that you can't manipulate. Top line revenue. If you're hearing this ad, it's because podcast advertising works. If you want to get your product, your company, your firm, your app, your community, etc., in front of accountants, bookkeepers, and tax professionals, you should be sponsoring Earmark podcasts, like the Accounting Podcast, Oh My Fraud, the Unofficial QuickBooks Accountants Podcast, and the Earmark Podcast with Blake Oliver, CPA. These are the biggest accounting podcasts on the planet, and we just opened up the 2024 ad slots. If you're ready to make your mark with Earmark Podcast, send me an email. David at earmark.me. That is David at earmark.me. Also, did you hear that Earmark is now doing webinars? That's right, webinars. We're calling them Webinars Plus. The plus is that you can attend the webinar live or watch on YouTube, LinkedIn, or Facebook. And if you can't attend a live webinar, you can just watch it on demand and still get CPE credits via the Earmark app, whatever time, place, or format is most convenient for you. You'll find the Webinars Plus channel in the Earmark app. If you don't have the Earmark app yet, hit pause, click that App Store icon, and search for Earmark. It's that easy. I mean, that's what Michael Jordan did with Nike, right? It was is the it? top line, I think. That's why he never got screwed, and he's still getting a billion dollars a year of cash. Because it's off the sale. I think it's off the sale, yeah. So, you know, whether or not Berkshire did the right thing, I guess, depends on what its agreement with, you know, Pilot was, or the Haslam's was. But, like, in general, I do like the idea of push-down accounting, right? It seems like it makes sense to bring the asset values up to what the acquiree paid for them to make the, you know, book value realistic. Um but I guess in this case, yeah. And so the impact is huge. It's like billions of dollars because the rest of the 20%, you know, of pilot could be worth billions more depending on how you calculate earnings before interest and taxes. So, so it sounds like maybe the, the family that owns pilot, their lawyers and team, their accounting accountants and their team who negotiated this deal, maybe got outsmarted possibly. Maybe signed so, a bad yeah. contract. Yeah. And now they're 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 crying crying about it. If know. you don't have control over the accounting method or the accounting of the books, like don't take a profit share. That's my lesson here. I don't know. Keila, I know this probably doesn't happen too much with, you know, the professional <laughs> services businesses, but like, you know, do you do you ever deal with like M and A or like your clients getting acquired or merging and stuff like this? This kind of this kind of stuff? We don't, but even talking about this now is a reminder of what the numbers do and don't tell you. So I think a lot of times in all businesses, it's like, I looked at the profit and loss. I know that it's profitable. And that is not it always a black and white answer. So to your point about the ways that this can be manipulated, you could be profitable one day and seem not profitable or at least less profitable the next day based on how they're doing the accounting method. And so you need to be able to see the other parts of the financial statements and the other ways that the business goes that I think can be ignored when everybody gets so obsessed with the P&L. Yeah. All right, so that's my accounting. I think that's great, Keila. Like, um, that's my accounting standards gap story <laughs> for the week. David, uh, what do you got on your plate? Well, I've been itching to talk about, I, I got uh, dental aligners uh, five months ago now. And so I've been, I wanted to talk about this because I really think it kind of ties into our industry, like the disruption that's happening. So, so these aligners, these are the plastic things you put in your, on your teeth. I mean, the like famous the... ones would be like Invisalign. Okay. 
right? I think yep. the and but so I've been waiting for a story to let me bring this to the show, right? Because what what happened was in my brain is I I go to the to get these done before they before you get them because they probably three D print them. You have to go to a, your dentist and your dentist has this like magic wand. He scans every tooth and they kind of build this three D model. And on the my dentist used a company called Dandy Aligners, so it's like a SaaS app. They roll out the computer, they scan your teeth. You know, builds this 3D model of your teeth in this app. But then after he scans it all, he pulls out his cracked screen Samsung phone and puts like a, a lip or mouth spreader in my mouth and takes photos with his like literally the same phone all of us have in our pockets, right? A cracked screen phone. And he makes this comment. And he's like, I don't know why they make me take these photos with my phone and upload them. So he, so he takes those photos off his phone, uploads this website. But it stuck with me him saying that. And I'm driving in the car later on that day, and I was like, holy crap, he's training the model. So they have the high-tech wand scanning the teeth, but when he takes the photos with his cell phone, he's training their model how to figure out the teeth uh... from, from cell phone photos, right? And which, what's the next step in that, right? That you'll be you, able the to consumer, do it yourself. Could do it at home. Exactly. That's what went through my head. And I actually saw a commercial for, I think at the time, was Smile Direct a couple of days later on the TV where people are taking photos with their cell phone at home of their teeth, right? Yeah. And if you really think about the disruption, at one time, orthodontists owned the market for braces. Now, with this technology, a dentist is now adding revenue to their, not firm, um, practice, right? They're adding revenue to their practice and stole that revenue from the orthodontist. My money's not going to an orthodontist. It's going to the dentist, right? And now these companies, these tech companies in theory are going to steal that from the dentist on a long enough timeline. It's very similar, I think, about these accounting AI startups. Some are partnering yeah. with accountants. They're, they're going down these paths. But just like in our industry where some of these companies are discovering it's harder than it is, scale factor being one of them that has vanished, you know, a pilot has these huge valuations. Well, the similar situation. So I don't know if you heard Smile Direct Club is one of these, these companies where you take pictures of your teeth and they, they print you the aligners. They just declared bankruptcy. So they went public in 2019 at a valuation of 8.9 billion. They had Crazy. 2 million customers who, who, have, who have been getting these done. They were, they always offered a lifetime smile guarantee. Right, um, but now they uh, they have debts reported at nine hundred million dollars, and they declared Chapter Eleven bankruptcy. Now, if you're a current customer, you still have to keep paying your bill, even though they're not going to give you your lifetime guarantee. And then there's also issues between um, the District of Columbia Attorney General's office, who's suing Smile Direct because they have some unfair and deceptive practices. The British Dental Association uh, is pointing to um, that there's misdiagnosis. You know. It, on, they're not handling things correctly. And so I think the summary is in just in the same way these AI startups that are trying to disrupt accounting are finding it's a little bit harder than you think. I think the same thing in under industries, they're getting fully disrupted, but it's turning out it might be a little bit harder to do all on your own. You mm. probably still need to partner with a dentist, right, at a minimum. But so that's kind of thing, I, you know, that's what went through my brain. And it's, they're going to take the dentist out of the game in the same way these AI startups want to take the accountants out of the game, right? It's kind of similar. Hmm. Yeah, the Smile Direct bankruptcy is fascinating to me, given how much money they raised. Right? You said how many billions of dollars were they valued at in their IPO? And eight point nine billion. If there was the value. Yeah, and so apparently at the bankruptcy at the time of bankruptcy, which was just December 
8th, so last week, they had $900 million in debt. So they had really loaded up on debt to fuel their growth. Mm-hmm. And they had competitors that they had lost market share to because there's nothing proprietary about their technology. And I think that's something too that's going to be interesting to watch in the whole apps, technology, AI space is that there's actually nothing proprietary about these large language models that as far as I can tell, anyone can use the theory to go out and build them. So just because OpenAI has the one that most people are using right now with ChatGPT doesn't mean that they're going to be the leader in the mm-hmm. future, right? The first mover is not always the is not always the winner, as we saw with Google, which was the thirteenth search engine, and uh, Facebook, I think, was the tenth social media site. So, it's also a reminder um, that, like all the lawsuits that were coming out, that you're not just going to disrupt, and Dennis aren't going to want to push back and say you actually still need us, and yeah. you're misdiagnosing or you're doing this wrong or whatever these things are. That like how much of your time ends up time and money ends up getting wrapped up in these like fights for what you're doing too. Mm-hmm. I, I I mean the the marketing impression is you don't need a dentist. That is full in yeah. the same way. It's like. You know, QuickBooks used to market like that. You don't need an accountant, just buy QuickBooks, yep. right? That's similar marketing. Because what I didn't know, like they had to put little uh, brackets on my teeth for the aligners to hook onto, mm. right? The dentist had to file space between different teeth. So oh, you can't now, do he's that doing the instructions provided to him, but. Well, they just should send you a little file. I didn't and know. You, can, you know, file your own. <laughs> your own teeth. Your own teeth. <laughs> that seems but I didn't dangerous. know how the dentist <laughs> had to be involved that much versus the impression yeah. they give you. Right, is you could just do the whole thing on your own. So, so I think the real lesson is just so hard to disrupt. Mm-hmm. You know, it, the money will keep going to these startups, but it's going to be very hard to do. And that it's hard to disrupt overall. Like if they were, if they had stayed partnering with Dennis, where it's like, I want you to use my version, and then I'll talk to your customer outside to like get the re-ups on the things that they need, but we're still going through you, that that's a whole different thing than you actually don't need to exist anymore because I'm here. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Keeper. By combining client communications, file review, reporting, and your task management, Keeper has everything you need to run your bookkeeping or task practice. Keeper is an all-in-one app that allows you, your team, and your clients to easily collaborate to make your monthly close as efficient as possible. Starting with a beautiful custom-branded client portal optimized for bookkeeping work, your client can answer questions you have about uncategorized transactions, allowing you to categorize and automatically post them to QuickBooks Online correctly, all without ever leaving Keeper. Via the month-end file review feature to surface transactions that may not be posted correctly, and by providing the perfect customized report that each client may need, Keeper can highlight the value that your firm provides clients. Keeper's built-in task management ensures nothing falls through the cracks, and it includes time tracking so you can see where you and your team spends their time. With Keeper's 1099 manager, you can easily review each client's list of vendors, email address, physical address, tax ID, and the amount paid, and from the same screen, even request W9s for any vendors that you're missing information for. No more jumping between screens or browser tabs. Keeper has a very affordable and clear pricing model that starts at only $8 a month. To learn more about why thousands of bookkeepers and accountants trust Keeper to manage their month-end close and to get 20% off your first three months by using code CAP20, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash keeper. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash K-E-E-P-E-R. We have a comment, a question from a live stream viewer. Sager says, 
What is your opinion on accountants slash CPAs pursuing a career in IT auditing? Does it have scope in the future? Keila, any opinions on IT auditing? Um, I think that accounting uh, professionals have some of the most transferable skills of any industry. Um, I think our attention to detail and even if you don't actually audit, you have to look at so much to be able to like support all of the things that you're doing that I think that it's a reasonable move. I also think that anything that can use your accounting and finance knowledge to really impress upon another industry is a good thing. Sometimes we have all the we're having all these conversations about like the accountant pipeline, but I also think think they don't all have to be accountants. Like we want you to have that knowledge and maybe go into other areas where you can use that accounting information to be able to potentially disrupt even other industries that don't start from the same place of where you did. So I think it's a cool direction for people to be able to go into. Yeah, I agree. Like the, I didn't do auditing myself, but I did get my highest score on the audit section of the CPA exam. And I have to say just even studying for it really in improved my ability to be analytical and to like think about when I'm looking at a set of financial statements, really think about what could, what could be wrong with this, right? Like think about what could be missing from this, which is honestly the thing that I use AI for the most is mm-hmm. I, I give it something that I've thought about and I say, what am I missing? It's really good at blind spots. And I think auditing teaches you to see blind spots. And at the end of the day, it's all coming back to the numbers. Like the reason that they're even doing these IT audits is probably some financial mechanism of where is money going? Where should we be investing? What are these things? So you have both brains. You have the ability to really be able to dig in and audit on that side, but you also know the financial potential implications of the work that you're doing. And at the end of the day, I mean, all the financial stuff is moving through the computer system. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, Blake, was that Sage Intact? Or, or if it was Oracle NetSuite, one of those two conferences, and I want to say it was Sage Intact, and it was Aaron Harris, uh, founder and CEO of, of Intact. And he talked about how, like, the accounting system is basically the entire tech system of a business now. Like, from the shopping cart on the front end to the back end payroll, like, every single thing is part of the accounting system now. Yeah, he right? said that, Do you he said that? that um, the general ledger or, or the, the accounting system, the information system is the business. So yeah, that's it. whereas in the past it was used to record the activity of the business, now it actually is the business. Like that if you're a Shopify seller, that Shopify store is your business and everything yeah. that goes on in the back end, all the data moving around in that database is your business. Yeah. Which, which is justifies IT auditing, right? I, yeah, I actually extent, so to yeah. answer your to answer the question, yes. Well, especially yeah. IT, I mean as more and more businesses are completely automated and and that information system is the business, IT audit will become even more important. Potentially more important than financial auditing because financial information is just one piece of the whole information system. Well, and even as we were talking about earlier, like the ways that we're using automations and computers and tech and all of that stuff on the back end to even encourage what our clients use and how they do their work. It's all tied. Like we're not doing anything without the tech. So having somebody who understands that, being able to go behind the scenes and really um, articulate what is working and what's not, what's broken and what's fraudulent and all of those things kind of in the IT side is a natural progression because that's where all of us live as accountants now too. Here's an article that has been in my queue for a while that is relevant to Keela's philosophy, I think. 
The headline is, exactly how much money do Americans need to be happy? So when we talk about focusing on building a firm that allows us to take vacations and not focusing on top-line revenue, we've also got to talk about how much money do we need as accountants to be happy, right? Yeah. If, if all you're pursuing is top-line revenue and salary growth and making making lots of money, that doesn't necessarily result in happiness, as we have seen with big four partners. Right? <laughs> I love how you always bring that up. Well, it's because that's, that's the, it's, it's the meme that has a lot of truth in it, right? It's like there's, you pursue money at all costs, and you sacrifice your family and your, your physical and mental health, and what do you end up with? Right. Gosh, and, and we just saw like Ernst & Young is laying off partners at the end of the year. Now, can you imagine if you work that hard to oh, make partner God. at EY and you get laid off? Anyway. I'd be furious. But anyway, let's talk about this. How much money How much? do Americans need to be happy? So this is a survey uh, that uh, was reported in CPA Practice Advisor. And uh, generations have a different idea of how much money they need. <laughs> surprise, okay. surprise. So um, this was a survey by Empower, a financial services company. They surveyed 2,000 Americans over the age of 18. And here's the results. So most Americans think money does buy happiness. 59% of Americans agree with this. And this shoots up to 67% of Gen Zers and 72% of millennials. So I'm in that, that sounds right. millennial crowd, right? I think, uh, yeah, 72%. Happiness is a six-figure salary. On average, Americans say they need $284,000 per year to be happy. Millennials are driving up the average, while other generations say happiness. I, I feel like, <laughs> like it was just like a blink of an eye ago, and this was like $86,000 was like the perfect amount. To like you be cannot happy be happy without a half a mil. <laughs> that is crazy. Well, so so the other generations say happiness is one hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year, but millennials say they need five hundred twenty-five thousand dollars a year. Wow! And the comment I in the article, <laughs> right? Well, so okay, so and that's year one. They need that year one straight out of college. <laughs> so my and guess every is year this. after, like not yeah. one time, but like yeah. on an annual basis, I need to be bringing this. It's amazing. Well, so I think that I think maybe that's what's distorting this uh, survey is the fact that like millennials are in their prime like house buying years. Oh yeah. Right, and if you think about it, like how much do you need to buy a house in America? It's a few hundred thousand dollars yeah. at least, right? Um, I think what what's the I forget what the price of an average home is. But they're is, not but buying like, it in cash today. Like right, right. No, but maybe they don't understand that when they take the survey. Right, I don't know. Yeah, that's my no, anyway. I can see that. Millennials are like I need to make half a million dollars because that house I well, want to buy is half a million. dollars. It's because dollars. they have student loans that add up to yeah. way more than that a year. Yeah, that too. Oh, well, don't forget, in the past, decades ago, you only you know a home a home cost you know what two or three times the average American salary. And now it's like 10 to 20, yeah. right? So um, happiness, here's, here's another stat from the survey. Happiness means paying the bills on time. While you might argue that people define happiness differently, 67% of Americans said financial happiness is paying the bills on time. 65% said it was being debt-free. 54% said it was being able to afford everyday luxuries without worry. And 45% said it was owning a home. However, 54% of people say they have debt. 36% said they could not pay for an unexpected expense over $500 without worrying. That's terrifying. So, yeah, it's, 
I, I guess, you know, like, I think a lot of this depends on where you live. Mm-hmm. If you live in a high cost area, then your your need for income is really high, especially if you're spending like a lot of Americans, 50% of your income on rent. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I just feel like there's room here to adjust our expectations. Like I made a conscious choice at some point in my career, I guess it was when I left public accounting, that I would take the lower long-term salary, right? I'm not mm-hmm. going to go for being a partner. Mm-hmm. And I would just be happier, right? Yeah. With, and I have been very happy with that choice, you know? And I've, like you, Keela, I've, like, designed my life around having flexibility. Yeah. So, you know, I want to, my goal now is, like, I want to work out an hour a day. Two mm-hmm. hours if I can, right? I want to like get lots of physical activity. I want to be outside. I don't want to sit in a box for you know eight hours a day. Yeah, I mean, and, and obviously uh, happiness is subjective, but I also wonder the difference between what would make me more than good, right? I can pay bills on time. I can take vacation, and what would make me like ecstatic because I can take five international trips a year and I can buy the house of my dreams and I can buy the car of my dreams. And so that requires way more money than if I could live the life that I wanted to Mm -hmm. and not have to worry or sacrifice a lot in order to do it. I don't need quite as much money as I need two nannies for my kids and all of these other things that would make your life, yes, that much easier, but then keeps bringing the needle up too because your expectation of happiness gets more and more expensive the more things you add Mm. to it. And not that, you know, everybody's standards is what it is, but I do think about this idea of like, if happiness to me is I could leave the country twice a year, that's a much lower salary than I would like to live in a different place every month of the year. That's what would make me happy. And then that costs a whole lot more money than 130K. And I think you know that crazy half a million dollar number for the millennials is a lot. Of this is tied to like social media and expectations in comparison to others. Oh, and maybe that's false it. We expectations. are the social And this media is why that whole generation. generation tends to be more depressed too, right? They, they, the expectations of the world and what they want out of the world and comparing themselves to their peers just makes all that very confusing. Yeah. And how fast you should messaging. be able to do it. So it's yeah. like I, you know, I'll see people online who are turning thirty or something. And I'm like, the things that you are requiring of yourself at 29 to be able to do and buy and achieve are things that I just probably hoped I could get in a lifetime. And so the pictures with a bow, because I turned 25 and I bought a brand new Mercedes, I'm like, that is cool. But that's not like an actual age 25 goal. That is like a thing that I hope that you can achieve for yourself. But that's different from now it would make me happy to be this person at 25. Well, and I, they're all exceptions, right? In theory, that's yeah. an exception, but what happens in social media seems makes it feel like it's the norm. And right. it creates a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure. It's worse than the partners kind of pressure. Like it's yeah, it's creating that same kind of pressure for a whole generation and not just, you know, people that work in accounting. That sounds stressful. To feel like I needed a half a million dollars a year just for me and salary feels stressful because it just seems like you'll, you're always yeah. like shooting for a new thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so let's, let's just take that out and say that's an outlier and say mm-hmm. the average is $130,000 a year mm-hmm. with the other generations. Right. And, you know, the average CPA in the United States makes $119,000 according to the Bureau wow. of Labor Statistics. 
I just asked. Uh, I just searched for that on Bing Chat in Microsoft Edge, which is my new way of searching the internet now. Sorry, Google. And it took me to, it's great, I can actually click through on that and see where that comes from. That comes from UWorld Accounting, David, a blog post oh, on UWorld Uworld. Accounting where we, we just interviewed yes. Peter Alinto and, and uh, Roger Phillip ah. from UWorld. Um, yeah, average CPA salary. CPAs working in public accounting firms earn an average of $120,000 a year. If you have more than 20 years of experience, you can earn an average of $150,000 annually. Now, let's say you're a partner, right? How much does the average CPA firm partner make? Is it between five hundred and nine hundred? Like, is it? Like every millennial wants to be a CPA partner. Apparently, I think it's crazy numbers. Uh, let's you, see. I'm going to share. I'll also share my screen so you can all see this. Uh, While you're pulling that up, I think I had an article, the article last week about how AI is going to help people become partners faster. And I was talking about in the UK that the average partner, maybe at KPMG, is getting nine hundred thousand or nine hundred thousand wow. pounds. Yeah. It's, yeah, so 660. listen to this. Um, according to a survey by the American Institute of CPAs, the average equity partner at an accounting firm earns $660,000 per year. So they're wow. beating they're beating that millennial wanna so, wanna so be. So the partners should be the happiest. Like like they should be the happiest as par but they, partners. But they clearly are not, right? Right. I mean, I don't know if we've seen any survey data to support this, but I feel like all the anecdotes that I hear are they are not. That's the impression I get too. I yeah. don't know them, but <laughs> everything and, that I hear, read, and am uh, privy to sounds like it's just so much work and pressure that you're basically getting paid for your worry. Yeah. And you're cutting years off your life too, mm -hmm. potentially. So at small firms, it's different, right? A small firm with less than 10 partners can pay an average of you know, $300,000 a year. A large firm with more than 100 partners may pay an average of $1.2 million per year. Incredible. Okay. Incredible. But I think like it just it just shows you that like what we what we think we need to be happy is not what we actually need to be happy. Like there's And do we stop when we hit that? So if you think that your number is two hundred thousand and then you hit to where you're making two twenty five a lot of people don't stop. They're like, if I can right. make 225, I can make 300. If I can make 300, I can make 500. So the idea of what could make me happy or content or like cover all of my bases and I still feel good isn't enough for people to say, and that is sufficient. And so yeah. now I'm good making a little bit over this number. It's like that number keeps moving as your opportunity to make more comes up too. Yeah, yeah. We will expand our consumption to match mm -hmm. our income. That's human nature. Yeah. And then now yeah. you need that amount of money every year. So my goal recently has been to actually shrink my needs, right? To figure mm -hmm. out what do I, like, how can I lower? It sounds, it sounds bad when I say it this way, but it's like, how can I lower my expectations for life so that I'm actually happy with what I have? Yeah. And find hobbies that don't cost any money, right? Or like, stop going on Amazon every day or whatever yeah. the, the spending all my money at Target, whatever the things are that I'm are you only... monitoring my computer? Are you <laughs> <laughs> listen? If my husband could hear me, he'd be like, Yes to this. Everything that she's saying, she should actually do. Um, but yeah, like what am I spending on impulsively or yeah. not really thinking about because the money exists for me to be able to do it? Whereas I would take that walk outside longer 
if there wasn't yeah. this bucket that was just kind of waiting for me to be able to spend it. But I think in addition to consumption, making you make different decisions, it's also this like, what feels like an opportunity cost. So you make that number and then somebody comes into your firm and they're like, I'll give you $100,000 for the year to work on this thing for me. Most people are not going to say no, even if they're not prepared for it or that's not the thing that they're the best at. They're like, I will make a way to make this $100,000 from you, even if it means I hire somebody who cost me $98K to run this program for you. Not really thinking about if I'm at enough, I don't need to take advantage of this opportunity. And the framing, I I really love this from you, Keila, is the, the, the... What's good enough? Or if it's just good enough. And I think about that a lot, you know, like I have a car, it's fully paid for. It's like Ford Flex. I don't, my kids are starting to get to the age where they're either driving on their own, they're going to move out of the house soon in the next three years. I'm like, I probably don't need that much space, but I'm like, yeah, it's good enough. I'll just keep driving yeah. this. Like it's D- good enough. David's right? thinking this like, way because he's about to start paying for college. Yeah, that's a whole different <laughs> soapbox we can go on. He's like, what can I? <laughs> um, can I get rid of so I can keep paying for yeah, y'all yeah. to get educated? Hey, Peter, thanks for joining us in the live stream. As a reminder to our listeners, you can subscribe to us on YouTube, get notified when we go live and pop in and and say hello. Peter says, thanks, Blake. I'm a college accounting lecturer, and I've been recommending my students to watch your show to learn about what's happening in the industry. Look forward to more exciting shows next year. Thanks, Peter. That's awesome. I've got one more story to take us out here. This this is like listener mail. Uh, I was tagged on LinkedIn. Jacob G., posted on LinkedIn, went to see the new Trolls movie with my wife and kids this weekend. The Trolls movie. I think this is the third one. I could be wrong. Went to see the new Trolls movie with my wife and kids this weekend. And of course, there was an accounting reference. Unbeknownst to me, the boy band group of five from the beginning of the movie had very specifically named tropes to tie them to the 90s boy bands. One of the Trolls was the fun one. The troll wore undies with a lightning bolt on them and did funny dances. I'll abbreviate it here not to ruin it for everyone. The five go their separate ways for many years, and when they come back together, the fun one is now a licensed CPA. (laughs) (laughs) He makes some funny accounting-esque jokes, and I kept looking at my wife, and she would roll her eyes. So uh, there there it is, your reference in modern culture to accounting and specifically the CPA license. So now I've been trying to convince my eight-year-old son to go see the Trolls movie with me. Maybe we'll do it this weekend. You too could be the fun one that turns into an accountant. That could be, <laughs> if you're listening, that could be your journey. <laughs> Next time, maybe they'll do the the CPA who turns into the fun one, right? That's yeah. what we need. That's how, If we want to change the image of the profession, we need to be well, lobbying Hollywood to give us some more positive... <laughs> So this could be a position. Stories. The AICPA should post a position to be like their LA Hollywood influencer correspondent. And that's your only job is to influence scripts and movies and production and directors to give accounting, shine new, good lights on accountants. Well, you know, we talked, we talked in the last episode about how they're making uh, the movie, The Accountant. They're making a sequel. So we're going to have The Accountant oh, 2. I didn't know that. Yeah, like Ben that. Affleck's coming back. And The Accountant 3, apparently. So maybe this is our opportunity to lobby whoever's writing the script to, you know, maybe make Ben Affleck's character slightly less autistic. (laughs) Not that there's anything, not, I'm not saying that's like, you know, it's a fine, right? Like I understand, but, but, you know, like, does, do we have to represent all accountants as being, you know, unable to understand emotion? Right. Right. So, or or just put him in a, with like, 
like having to be around accounting peers. It's a very diverse group. Exactly. They all have fancy cars they drive. They are all happy. Like just just put him in immediately. Like he goes to a conference with other accountants, and they're all happy people. It's very diverse. Everything we want the profession to be. Yeah, we, maybe we could uh, pitch that. That's what we need. We need that character in the movie. His, Better representation. The happy accountant. The happy accountant. Hey, Keila, thanks for joining us so much. Um, you have your own podcast, and our no. listeners should go discover that. Where will, where should they follow you online? Yeah, so we're on Instagram at Little Fish Accounting. We have a podcast called Fish Food um, that you can find in your feeds. It's changing at the top of the year, but go listen to what we have so far now. Um, and I am on LinkedIn. You can search me by my name and find me there. Fantastic. Oh, and the Journal of Accountancy, you can find her there. You, you can find me on the cover of the Journal of Accountancy for December. Um, and you can read all about my thoughts about building to enough and being intentional about how you grow your firm. Love it so much. David, where can people find you online? I'm just on all the socials at David Leary. I am at Blake T. Oliver on X and find me on LinkedIn. That's my favorite place these days. Akila, I know you started on Twitter, but like... Mm-hmm. The changes, I don't know. Twitter makes me sad, so I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn now. Yeah, LinkedIn. And threads. I spend a lot of time. Threads. I haven't really tried threads. I know Instagram keeps trying to push me there in the feed. Oh yeah. You know? I wish they just build it into Instagram. I think it would just be They'll probably get there. They were like, first we want to show you that we're better than Twitter and then we will own you in all of these places. So I'm sure they're headed that way. And don't forget, you can earn CPE continuing professional education for listening to this episode and every episode of the accounting podcast download the earmark app and search for the accounting podcast you can take a free quiz get your cpe certificate so if you've been putting it off now's the time get that cpe before the year end thanks everyone see you around bye Time for the classifieds. Your accounting firm is buzzing with new hires. They're eager, they're promising, they say they know QuickBooks inside and out, but soon you're seeing red flags. Errors keep creeping into the work, and once again, you're in the train correct repeat cycle. Break free with Royal Wise Owls. Alisa Katz Pollock, one of Ignition's 2023 top 50 women in accounting, developed a comprehensive QuickBooks training platform with live webinars and on demand courses enabling your staff to learn QBO while earning CPE. Their bronze, silver, and gold memberships range from core QBO courses and discussion groups to unlimited video library access, monthly coaching sessions, and exclusive discounts. Kickstart your journey towards a QuickBooks-savvy workforce today by visiting royalwise.com. That's royalwise.com. Stop settling for slow payments and say hello to the future of AR with Forwardly. Accounts that use Forwardly can receive payments in less than 22 seconds. Yes, under 22 seconds via the newly launched FedNow network. And if your bank or a client's bank doesn't yet use FedNow, Forwardly will send the payment via same-day ACH for free. To get paid in under 22 seconds, go to forwardly.com. That's forwardly.com. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.